Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson, and we have some exciting news for listeners. We have a new co-host, at least on a trial basis. We'll see if you can, uh, you know, keep up here. We have Bloomberg News' Supreme Court reporter, Greg Storr. Welcome to the podcast. You've been a guest before, so um, welcome as a co-host. Thanks, Kimberly. And go ahead and say it. You want to see how I, how I do, whether I can live up to the Jordan Rubin standard. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so let's get to your audition, Greg. This is our deep dive episode where we're going to look at U.S. v. Texas, an immigration case to be argued at the court during its December sitting on November 29th. I, I always hate it when they do that. It makes it hard to, to say what the sitting is. Um, the case centers on the Biden administration guidelines that tell immigration officials to prioritize certain people, like people who are threats to public safety or national security, when it comes to apprehension and uh, deportation. And we'll be joined by University of Texas at Austin professor Steve Vladek, who filed a really interesting friend of the court brief in the case. So just a note here that we did reach out to Amici on the other side of this issue, but they weren't able to join us for this podcast. But first, as it seems we sort of need to do at the beginning of all of these episodes, we're going to talk a little bit about the shadow docket. Um, there's been some movement in a couple of cases. Greg, can you tell us about um, first the one out of Arizona dealing with some January 6th subpoenas? Yeah, so this was a, a, a subpoena by the committee that was trying to get the phone records, not the content, but but the records of, of who she was in touch with from uh, the Arizona Republican Party chair, Kelly Ward. Uh, she went to court to try to try to block the subpoena, and the Supreme Court cleared the path for the committee to get, get that, rejected her application. We had two dissenters, Justices Alito and Clarence Thomas, who... Uh, despite the uh, recurring calls for him to recuse from cases like this because his wife, who's a conservative activist, uh, actually was questioned by the January 6th committee. He he did not do that. Um, nobody gave any explanation, so we can only speculate. We can make stuff up here if we want, Kimberly, I guess. But um, all we know is they, they turned it away, so the committee will be able to get that information from her. Okay, so we have an answer on that one. We are still waiting on an answer in the shadow docket case dealing with uh, former President Trump's taxes, right? Can you tell us a little bit about what's uh, what's going on there? Yeah, this uh, this will be closely watched. This is this this years long campaign of the House Ways and Means Committee to get Donald Trump's taxes, and the committee says it's doing it for legislative purposes. Uh, Donald Trump is asking the Supreme Court to block that from from happening. The, that case is fully briefed. It could be happening uh, right in the middle of our podcast. The court could act on it. And, and this, again, as you said, this is a shadow docket matter, an emergency matter where the question is, will the court stop the materials from being turned over right now while the case is litigated? It, if the court blocks the records from being turned over from the IRS to the, the House Ways and Means Committee, that's really the ball game because on January 3rd, Republicans are going to take over the House. We now know that and undoubtedly will uh, withdraw the request for the records. And so anything that happens beyond that would be legally moot. Um, Kimberly, let me ask you about something. Uh, you drew the, let's call it the long straw to go to the the big dinner at the Federalist Society convention. They have it every year at Union Station. 
Um, and you got to see some special guests there. Tell, tell us about it. That's right. So listeners may remember this is the conservative group that was particularly influential during the Trump administration with regard to confirming judges and justices. It was their first annual meeting since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade, and it attracted four four justices. Uh, Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett were all there. Two of them actually spoke during the group's black tie dinner. Uh, First up was Justice Alito, the author, of course, of the Dobbs decision, who got a vigorous standing ovation, as did the Dobbs decision itself several times. Uh, Justice Barrett also spoke briefly, though largely as a tribute to longtime D.C. Circuit Judge Silberman, who passed away recently. Um, I think the best way to describe the mood at this dinner was triumphant. There was a lot of sort of celebrating, um, particularly the Dobbs decision. But I think when we consider the cases that the justices are hearing this term, there's going to be a lot more to celebrate for this group. All right. All right. So let's get into our actual deep dive case. Joining us now is University of Texas at Austin law professor Stephen Vladek, who's an expert in, um, well, seemingly everything these days. <laughs> but for our purposes today, he studies federal courts and, as he put it, the ways courts may be abused by litigants to promote and facilitate partisan political agendas. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to be back with you. Yeah, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of the legal issues at the heart of this case, um, you wrote a friend-of-the-court brief that focused on the ways litigants can abuse federal court systems. Um, So tell us a little bit about how that happens. Yeah, so, you know, I think most folks, whether they're lawyers or not, are loosely familiar with the idea of forum shopping, which is, you know, the idea that plaintiffs especially will try to file their lawsuits in districts or states where they have a reasonable expectation of a relatively more favorable reception compared to other states. Um, What I found, though, is that there's this growing phenomenon, not of forum shopping, Kimberly, but of judge shopping, where a number of litigants and most prominently the state of Texas as a litigant are actually filing in particular divisions within the federal district courts where they have in many cases, a 100% chance, in some cases, a 95% chance of drawing not just a sort of from a favorable pool of judges, but actually a specific judge where they know that by filing the lawsuit in this particular forum, they're getting Judge X. Um, and the sort of the, the enterprise here is to try to argue and explain why, you know, I think that's actually different in both degree and kind from the forum shopping that I think we've all come to expect from savvy litigants in our system. Steve, back when Donald Trump was president, we saw a lot of blue states filing lawsuits, and they always seemed to be in a place like New York or San Francisco, where they uh, frequently also had favorable judges. What, if anything, is different about this? So I think there are two things, Greg, that are different. Um, The first is, yes, blue states filed lawsuits against President Trump. There's no there's no problem to me other than the standing question, which we can get into. But like as a forum choice, state should be allowed to sue in their state, like New York suing in New York, California suing in California, Texas suing in Texas. To me, that's not the problem. But if you look at the cases that New York and California brought, you know, California sued in the Northern District of California, where the Attorney General's office is, 
um, where there are 18 judges, where they had a random shot at getting any one of the 18. Now, most of those 18 are Democratic appointees, so folks might say, well, that's, you know, that's the same thing. I think there's a difference between having a one in 18 shot at getting any particular judge and what Texas is doing, which is not filing in Austin, where the state government is, but filing in Amarillo or Lubbock or Victoria, where they have a 100% chance of drawing a specific judge. And so it's not just sort of maximizing the forum. It's actually literally handpicking the judge who's going to decide these cases. Greg, judges that they know have a track record of, one, hostility to, for example, Biden's administration policies, two, a willingness to issue nationwide injunctions, um, right? And so, you know, I guess to me the difference is taking a shot on the wheel of a particular district court versus literally filing a lawsuit somewhere where you are handpicking the judge who's going to hear it. The latter, to me, I think, raises questions about the appearance of impartiality that the former does not. Can you say um, how this all worked out in this particular case? Maybe set that example for people as a little more concrete. Yeah. So, you know, this case, the, the actual substance of this case, as you guys are, you know, know and have said, right, is about the sort of the immigration enforcement priorities that the Biden administration has set. Um, when Texas filed this lawsuit, one of the 29 that Texas has filed to this point against President Biden, they filed it in Victoria. Um, I suspect many listeners don't even know where Victoria, Texas is, um, right? It has no specific connection to this case. There actually are a couple of places in Texas where you can make an argument that there's a more concrete venue-related argument here. There's nothing in Victoria. The reason why they picked Victoria is because they had a 100% chance of drawing Trump-appointed district judge Drew Tipton. Um, Tipton, who has previously ruled against various Biden administration immigration policies, who has shown real skepticism in his prior decisions about the discretion the administration has purported to exercise, who's shown no reluctance, right, to issue nationwide injunctions. And so, you know, I think this case is unfortunately not unique, Kimberly, but actually is a sort of a perfect uh, um, microcosm of the larger problem we've identified. So what do you expect the Supreme Court to do about it? I mean, your, your brief was certainly interesting reading, but of course, this is a case about some legal issues, whether Texas has standing to challenge this policy and whether the policy itself is within the, the president's authority. Um, what does it matter and, and how uh, can the Supreme Court possibly address the issues you're talking about in this case? Yeah, so I, I think that there are two different things we hope to accomplish with the brief. The first is just education. Um, you know, I think it's common for folks who first learn about this problem to think that this is something everyone does. Um, and Greg, much like your question to you know, say, well, didn't the Democrats do this to Trump? And so the first is to sort of say, no, this is actually what is qualitatively different about what Texas is doing um, in a way that even if it doesn't drive the merits of the court's analysis, might at least, you know, sit with some of the justices, resonate with them. But second, on the merits of this case, you know, Texas obtained a preliminary nationwide injunction. One of the factors for an injunction is supposed to be whether the injunction is in the public interest. And, you know, we've argued over and over again that the public interest should include circumstances in which the courts are appearing to be acting in the public interest. Um, and so, you know, part of to me what this case is so important as a referendum on is if Texas can bring this lawsuit, why can't Vermont? 
And why can't California? And why can't Georgia? And if every state has standing, which as you guys know, this is the first question presented, right? Then how, how does any state have standing? So Greg, we, we see the argument as both optically relevant and then sort of directly relevant to both the standing analysis and the entitlement or lack thereof that we think Texas had to a preliminary injunction, given the traditional factors for injunctive relief. Okay, well, Steve, you're making my job really super easy because that's a great transition to talk about um, what I wanted to get to next, which is, of course, standing. Um, This is something you say can sort of rein in this judge shopping and forum shopping. Can you tell us just like back up and give listeners an idea of what standing is? What are the things that we're looking at here? Yeah, sure. So Article 3 standing is um, this remarkably important but dense and complicated federal courts doctrine. Um, And it's the idea that the Supreme Court has read into Article 3 of the Constitution that the federal courts are jurisdictionally limited to resolving actual cases and controversies. Good name. Indeed. Um, (laughs) um, And and that part of the part of the case and controversy requirement uh, is that the 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 plaintiff has to have standing, meaning they have to have been actually injured in a way that is both concrete and particularized, meaning it's a tangible injury that they have suffered in some way that's unique to them. Because if it's just a so-called generalized grievance, if it's a complaint we all have against the government, that's what the political process is for, not the courts. And so, you know, the, the current challenges over the Biden student loan debt program, I think, are a great example of a classic generalized grievance where people hate the policy and they think it's unlawful. But there's been a real struggle, at least so far, to find anyone other than maybe Missouri, um, right, that has standing. In the Texas case, you know, part of what has enabled the phenomenon of what Texas has done, of the 29 lawsuits Texas has filed, is that Texas has adopted a very broad theory of when states should be allowed to sue the federal government. Um, Historically, it was very limited. Historically, under a really old case called Massachusetts versus Mellon, the idea was that states generally can't sue the federal government unless they've suffered some kind of sovereign injury, some kind of injury to their interests as a state, and that states can't just sue the federal government on behalf of their citizens. And so Texas has tried to come up with this argument that it suffers some kind of indirect economic injury from immigration policies that are unlawful. And, you know, Kimberly, that argument might seem plausible enough in the abstract. The central problem with it is that there's nothing about that argument that's unique to Texas, right? You know, if Texas suffers that injury, then not not only do other border states suffer that injury, but states inside the country suffer that injury because the costs of having individuals who Texas believes are required to be deported in the country are distributed across the country because that's where the folks live. So, you know, I think part of why this case is really important is not just the executive power question of whether the executive branch is allowed to set these kinds of enforcement priorities, but whether Texas has standing to challenge it. Because if Texas does, everyone does. And that would mean not just that, like, you know, uh, other red states could challenge this policy. It would mean that in a future Republican administration, blue states could challenge any policy. And I think we've seen so much of that in the Biden administration, where every time there's a new policy, the next day, some red state attorney general, whether it's Ken Paxton or, you know, other attorneys general, sort of walk into court and sue to block it. And I guess the question for the justices in this case is, are you content with a system 
in which that's going to be the norm no matter who the president is, right, for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Or do you want to go back to a more sort of individual plaintiff-driven approach to this kind of litigation? Yeah, I thought it was interesting whenever you were saying that um, the particular judge here has already shown hostility towards Biden, Biden's policies, because like we're only two years into the administration and it takes a while typically to get these lawsuits through. So like to already have a track record is um, is pretty wild. Well, and, and it's the track record, Kimberly, not just of individual judges, but, you know, I mean, you guys know that one of my hobby horses is the shadow docket. And I think part of why we've seen this ratcheting up of attention and pressure and drama when it comes to emergency applications is because we've seen more and more of these cases where at a very, very early stage, some district court somewhere that's hostile to the current president, right, issues a nationwide injunction. And right off the bat, that just sort of creates all this litigation pressure to get a stay from the Court of Appeals. And then when the Court of Appeals either grants or denies the stay, either the state plaintiff or the federal defendant wants the Supreme Court to intervene, um, all at a very early stage. And so I think, you know, the, the phenomenon of judge shopping and broad state standing, when you add them together, is actually one of the principal causes of all of this, you know, additional chaotic emergency litigation that we've all been, I guess, saddled with. <laughs> you guys cover it and me criticizing, um, right, for, for much of the last five, six, seven years. Let me just ask one more standing question, just backing up even further. And we'll, we'll go into that question you were you were sort of posing. Is this a world the justices want where, um, you know, every policy that comes out is going to be challenged by either red states or blue states, depending on who's who's in office? Um, you know, some people might say and, and you know, uh, perhaps people on the left would say when Donald Trump was president, he was doing an awful lot of things that were clearly in violation of the law and. Uh, surely there must be a way we can go to court to stop that. Is that such a bad instinct? And why in every case do you need to go through such a uh, detailed analysis of whether, you know, what the economic impact is or whether a state can sue on behalf of its citizens or whether you can find some individual who suffered some, uh, you know, technical harm because of a policy? So, I mean, I think it's, you know, Greg, you could defend a legal system where, you know, every policy was subject to legal challenge the second it was promulgated. Some other countries have that legal system. Um, Israel's a good example, right? The Israeli Supreme Court, when it sits as the high court of justice, is basically a court of administrative review with no standing requirement. Um, it's just not how our legal system is set up. And if the Supreme Court wants to completely reconceive all of our standing doctrine, you know, that's going to have consequences that I'm not sure the justices want. And I don't know what the coherent principle is that says we're going to reconfigure standing doctrine when states are plaintiffs but nobody else. So instead, right, it seems like the choices are the standing doctrine we have, which really does focus on concrete and particularized injuries, or radically overhauling our entire legal, our entire legal system um, in ways that I don't think we're set up for. I mean, the Supreme Court's hearing 57, 58 cases a year. Um, in a world with a much more permissive standing regime, that number would go up a lot. You know, I, I think that the problem to me is that we're in this impossibly sort of um, 
uh, we're in this middle position, right, where we haven't embraced a broader standing rule, but we seem to be allowing states to get away with it. And back to the sort of the Trump cases, you know, I, I think it's worth reminding folks that, yes, there are states in the names of some of the Trump cases, but actually the parties withstanding were always individuals who had been harmed. So the travel ban case, Trump versus Hawaii, the only standing that was actually ever determined in that case was the standing of individual plaintiffs who had been directly affected by the travel ban. Um, and even though Hawaii is the lead plaintiff, their standing is never the focal point. In contrast to you guys might remember in the Affordable Care Act litigation a decade ago, right? The Fourth Circuit said Virginia did not have standing to challenge the individual mandate. And the only reason why Florida was a party in the case that ultimately reached the Supreme Court was because Florida was challenging the Medicaid expansion, something that acted directly on the state as opposed to something that acted in, in a way that affected individuals. So I, I guess it's just like I, I understand, Greg, and, and I teach in my federal courts class the sort of the argument for a more permissive standing regime. I, I just think we have to – we all have to sort of say out loud there's no universe in which this Supreme Court wants that regime outside of the context of states as plaintiffs. And – you know, at least for a hundred years since Massachusetts versus Mellon, the court has had the opposite view that states are not special as plaintiffs when they're suing the federal government. If they're going to turn around and say they are, that's going to be pretty significant, not just for Democratic presidents, but for Republican ones as well. So we have a couple minutes left. I feel like, I don't know, we should talk about the actual policy uh, that's being challenged here. So this is an immigration See, policy. Kimberly has been giving me a hard time because I, over the past <laughs> week or so, because I apparently care about standing too much. <laughs> well, Welcome to just, my world. It's just more than usual. It's done too much. It's just more than normal Greg cares about standing. <laughs> All right. So to the immigration policy at issue here, it deals with enforcement priorities. And there's a particular problem that is not unique to the Biden administration that they say they're trying to solve with sort of setting out um, who needs to be, you know, sort of in front of the line to be removed. So can you explain that for our listeners, kind of flesh that out? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a logistics problem, right? I mean, so there are, by some estimates, right, more than 11 million undocumented immigrants in the United States, multiple administrations, the Department of Homeland Security has repeatedly discovered, concluded, whatever, um, that even at its best, it can only remove, um, you know, maybe two to three million undocumented immigrants a year. And that's probably overly uh, optimistic. And so the question, you know, if, if you accept the math problem that it's not actually possible for the Department of Homeland Security to locate and remove every single undocumented immigrant in the United States, the question is how should DHS prioritize who it's going to focus on, which cases it's going to you know, devote resources to, who it's going to want to remove. And since 1996, when Congress radically overhauled the immigration laws and increased the sort of the grounds for removal and the types of sort of requirements for people who are subject to removal, you know, successive presidencies, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, um, have all had their own enforcement priorities. And the ruling in this case, Texas's theory, which Judge Tipton accepted, is that the relevant statutes, the 96 statutes, don't actually allow the executive branch to exercise discretion. They create mandates. Um, mandates, mind you, that no one has ever complied with because it's not possible to comply with the statutory mandates. And so we have this awkward phenomenon of, you know, sort of a statutory interpretation that produces a literally impossible result. 
right, versus the long-recognized discretion that we usually think the executive branch has. Guys, not just as a matter of statute, but as a matter of constitutional law under the Take Care Clause um, to determine how best to enforce federal law. So, you know, I think it's, it's actually a really fascinating case, Kimberly, on the merits because it doesn't have an obvious ideological bent, um, right? One might think that conservatives who are defenders of executive power would be really wary of Congress being able to control how the executive exercises discretion and even more wary of the courts telling the executive how to exercise discretion, um, which I, I think not to sort of make Greg happy, but this is also part of why I think the standing issue comes back because the standing issue is a way for the justices to actually avoid what is a very sticky separation of powers question and one where their sympathies might be inconsistent with their political preferences. Mm. So I, I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but if the Supreme Court agrees with Texas here, like what happens if there's not <laughs> enough resources to do what you know Congress has mandated they do? What happens? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, like I, you know, I, I, I don't. We, we've never gotten to the point where you know a conclusive final decision of the U.S. judiciary has ordered the federal government to do something that literally lacks the ability to do. Um, and and you know, and I think that's one one of the remarkable sort of um, I don't know sort of uh, clouds right lingering over this case is like. Doesn't there come a point where the courts have to actually step back and say, this is really a fight between the political branches about how best to carry out Congress's policy mandates? And if you've had, really for guys at this point, 26 years, a statutory mandate that is physically impossible for the executive branch to enforce, um, shouldn't that tell us something about the mandate? <laughs> um, right. And so so this is why I mean, so th this is why to me, all roads lead to standing, because the most obvious way for the court to avoid that hornet's nest um, is to reaffirm what to me are fairly foundational standing principles that would have, I think, really important and to my view, salutary downstream effects on you know future litigation. Well, Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know Greg is probably going to, it's like his birthday with all the standing discussions that we had. Uh, I, it's great to be with you guys. And, and I think we're going to be talking about standing a lot more as the student loan cases make their way up to the court. Yes. Looking forward to that. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. So uh, really interesting interview with, with Steve Laddick there. Uh, really interesting brief he filed where it talks about the mechanics of, of how uh, the, the so-called judge shopping works. Fascinating to know whether that has any impact on this case. And as Steve said, uh, sure sounds like a sleeper case that you and I ought to pay attention to. Right. So we'll be skipping next week, but the week after that, we'll have your sneak peek episode of the December sitting. And until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. 
Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.